Well, thank you, Jason and worship team. An incredible job. Uh, our church has been, uh, I forgot that was happening again, kind of freaked me out. All the kids were getting up. All right, uh, just give me another couple months. I'll be used to that. Man, my first 10 seconds couldn't have been that bad. Just clearing them out. Now, we're so excited for them. John does an absolutely amazing job. He and Abby are a gift uh, to our church family, and, and so too Bobby and our, and our wonderful leaders that help make refuge a reality for our church. And every one of us gathered here, regardless of how long you've been a Christian, a major part of your testimony is to say there was a point in your life when you had not yet trusted Christ. There was a season of your life, for some of us, a very short amount of time if we became Christians at a very young age, and for some of us, a much longer amount of time if we become Christians later on in life. But there was a season in our lives in which we, we held to a false worldview, a false way of, of looking at the world, a way in which we processed our experiences and our understandings that ultimately conflicted with the Word of God and with Jesus being God in flesh. This is a part of our story of being Christians, is to say that we have come out of a false way of viewing the world, and, and we've come into a way of understanding life through the lens of God's Word. And so this morning, as we come to our text of Acts chapter 17 for just this last week, as you put on your reminder of where Paul has traveled, he began in Thessalonica, this being kind of right there in his second missionary journey. He began ministering to the, the, the believers, or, or to, he went to the, the Jewish people in, in Thessalonica and began to teach them how Christ satisfied all the demands of the law, how it was meant that he would come and that he would live a sinless life and he would die on the cross and he would defeat death and raise again and, and you can have forgiveness and hope in Jesus, who has ascended to heaven, and he will one day come again. And he preached this message, and he was, he was ultimately chased off by this mob that did not want him there. So he goes to Berea, if you remember. And last week, we looked at his interaction with the Bereans, these people that were described as being noble because they searched the things of God's word to see if the message was true. And listen to this, it was true. And a great many of noble men and women and, and Jewish people place their faith and trust in Christ. But just like what happened to, in Berea, so too it happened in Thessalonica. And just like it happened in Thessalonica, it happened in Berea. And so Paul flees and he goes to this city that is Athens. And in our text this morning, we, we've, we've discussed what's it look like to interact with people in our life that maybe have a church background, that grew up in church that have some sense of authority and, and love and fear of God's Word, of respect for God's Word. But today in our interaction with Paul in Athens, you and I receive insights for how we might engage people that have no church background, people who openly embrace a worldview that is not of Christ, and as we look at this text, you and I will pull out three incredible priceless principles for how we might specifically individually in our lives and collectively as a church family engage the people that God has sovereignly littered into our lives who might claim a coexisting lifestyle, 
a coexisting worldview. If you look at your bulletin, you've seen that probably, uh, that coexist. And I want to be clear. I want to make sure you understand I'm not mocking. I'm not insulting. So if that's a bumper sticker on your car, don't try and leave the parking lot really quickly today. But I do want to point out this, this idea of coexisting that is very popular in our world, in our culture. And I want to be very clear that, that we believe that as beings created the image of God, all people are worthy of dignity, value, and respect in how we treat them and care for them and love them. And yet the very image of that coexists, this idea, so yes, we coexist together in this world, but the T in coexist is the cross. And the cross exists because those worldviews are not equal in truth. They are not equal in truth. The cross had to happen because there is only one way to forgiveness of sins. There is only one way to peace with God. There is only one hope for all people in all places in all the earth. So the question becomes, if you believe this, Christian, how do you go about engaging a world that's enslaved by a mindset that says, anything's okay, just don't tell me what to do. Because the hard truths of the gospel will threaten your worldview. But remember, as we come into this text, that every one of us that claims to be a Christian here, every one of us that is a Christian that confesses faith in Christ, we've come out of a worldview that is opposite of the biblical gospel. And God has placed specifically people in your life who are not currently submitting to Christ, who do not know Christ, Yet by his goodness and our faithfulness in proclaiming the gospel, the Lord may flip their lives upside down to become a people who have come out of the world and have become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. There is no mistake who God has placed in your life. So let's go to our text today of Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16, as we look at the three, these first of three principles for engaging a coexisting culture. And the first is this. You and I must have compassion for the spiritually dead. If we hope to engage a coexisting culture, we must have compassion for the spiritually dead. And we do this by developing it in two ways. The first of which is this, believing that there is no such thing as an off-the-clock Christian. You and I must, must believe that there's no such thing as clocking in or clocking out of our faith. It's who we are. It's our life. Look at verse 16. I'm reading from the ESV. If you don't have a Bible, be sure and grab one from the pew in front of you and you can follow along. And verse 16 reads as this. Now while, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now Athens was the crown jewel of Greece. It's the place of, of Socrates and Plato and uh, not like the stuff you play with, but the other guy, the smart guy. It was full of all these, this place of, of, of deep thinking and, and wise living that influenced all of Rome. And in Athens, we have a culture that is very much like our culture today. It was actually incredibly filled with idols. Now, we don't have idols everywhere. You're not going to drive down North Street and see all these gold objects or, or different special areas where people are going to come and make a sacrifice in that same way. But this city was littered with idols, and it was the key influencing thought center that, that, that rippled through the area. And Paul is here, and he's waiting. What's he doing? He's waiting. 
He's waiting for his friends who stayed back in Thessalonica to continue, or in Berea to continue discipling those young believers. And while he's waiting, he looks around and lining the streets are thousands and thousands of idols. As a matter of fact, by God's goodness, many of those idols are still preserved. Did you know that? You can, you can Google any time if you like. You can Google in, not right now, by the way, but you can Google in any other time the Archaeological Museum of Athens, and you will find thousands of these idols that, that were preserved over these uh, 2,000 years. Isn't that cool? You can Google in, and you can possibly see some of the idols that Paul looked around at at the time. Again, not right now. I'm watching you. Don't be Googling that image on your phone. It's a good activity when you get home, though. And while he's there, he sees the idols, and, and what does it say happens to his spirit? He is provoked, like provoking someone for a fight. But not in a way that says, I want to hit you, but in a different way. I, I want you to keep one finger right here, because we're going to come right back to Acts for the rest of our time, but I do want you to go all the way back to the Old Testament, to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 9. And I want to point this out because Deuteronomy, right, duet, number two, the second giving of the law, this, this reemphasis of the law. And in this book, we have this reemphasis that's taking place of, of how the Israelites in their idolatry provoked God to anger. And what's interesting to me is the same type language is used for how the, the Israelites' idolatry provoked God in his anger that same type language is used right here for Paul. Paul, he sees the brokenness and the idolatry of the Athenian people, and he is provoked not to smash the idols. He's not going to pick up a hammer and start swinging, but he is provoked to engage them. You see? Provoked to engage them. So well, let's read together Deuteronomy chapter 9. Let me read it for us, verses 7 through 8. We could read much more than that to, to get a, even a more full picture of this, but for our time's sake, we'll just read that. Deuteronomy 9, 7 through 8, look at this. Moses, he, he writes and he says, Remember this, and never forget how you provoked the anger of the Lord your God in the wilderness from the day you left Egypt until you arrived here. You have been rebellious against the Lord. In verse 8, At Horeb, you provoked the Lord's wrath so that he was angry enough to destroy you. Back here in our text, Paul is waiting in, in Athens for his friends, for his teammates, his mission team. And while he looks around, he is provoked by the brokenness that he sees by the Athenian people. And so he engages them with the gospel. Listen, I don't know where you're at in life. I don't know if you're in a time of waiting for a certain season of life that you hope comes. But I know if Paul can be waiting and still find time to engage the loss that God has placed around him, I know that you and I, in seasons of waiting, are called to, to engage a world that is desperately lost and in need of truth. Do you agree with me on that? So that means you and I can no longer complain about waiting in line at the DMV. We're called to engage. We can no longer complain about waiting for that season of life, or, or if you're single and you want to be married, then you can't complain about when is this going to happen. If you're a college student and you're waiting until you can finally get that job that you really wanted, you can't complain in that. Rather, that's an admission that here's an opportunity that God has given me in this season of life to engage for his goodness and his kingdom. You and I are called to be a people who engage, so there can't be an off-the-clock Christianity. And secondly, 
we must believe that the gospel isn't just for people like me. We must refuse the way of thinking that says the gospel is just for people like me. And we're going to read 17 through 21, and I want you in your Bibles, if you can even underline, if you're into marking your Bible, I'm not going to cause you to break your conscience if you don't want to mark your Bible up, but you can underline or make a note of all the different kinds of people that are in Athens that Paul's engaging with. So uh, we're going to read 17 through 21 and, and notice, again, that the gospel is not just for people like us or like me. It reads as this. So Paul reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. That's a place where they discuss things saying, may we know that this new teaching uh, is that you are presenting to us. Verse 20, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So he gives us some background of what happens in the Areopagus. The biblical gospel is not a regional faith. Christianity is not a regional religion. It's not regional. It's not bound to one different area. It's kind of like sports. There's, there's not a lot of hockey fanaticism here in Nacogdoches, it seems. Something about that 197-degree humidity that we've been experiencing since we've been here. By the way, Sarah and I always loved air conditioning, but ever since we moved here, we love air conditioning. It's a whole new level we didn't even know we, we enjoyed, so... Thank you for that. Uh, it's, it's been good. And so it's not a regional thing. It's not a regional weather. Christianity is a global religion. And that's what inspires Paul as he's waiting here in Athens, this place of thousands and thousands and thousands of gods and idols to engage them. I, I noticed at least six different kinds of people. Did you see that? He engages with, back in uh, verse 17, the Jews. And then you have the devout persons, which is kind of shorthand for saying the Gentiles who converted to Judaism. Third, we have whoever happened to be at the marketplace by chance there. Do you see that at the end of verse 17? In the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. You have the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. By the way, if you're reading the Bible and you see a word like Epic, uh, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers and you feel kind of kind of slow because you don't know what that is. That's okay. None of us do either. Just go with it. Uh, but I did do some research until you look it up, right? None of us knows what that's about. And, and, and these people basically had the same idea, two different ways of thinking. Their goal was to be made into a perfect being. They wanted to perfect themselves. But they had two different ways of doing so. So the Epicurean, we use the word epic. Kids use the word epic today, or at least they did like eight years ago when I was still kind of cool. I don't know what they say anymore. But they use the word epicurean. The idea is that they would, they would reach a point of their life and, and, and understanding in which they would ultimately be able to, to train their desires. Their desires would be trained and perfected. The Stoics, on the other hand, had the idea of we're going to strengthen our mind and gain enough wisdom to get to a point where we can embrace openly whatever happens in life. So you've heard the expression, they're kind of a Stoic personality. They're not shaken. That's these two schools of thought. So what does Paul do? Paul says, that's a, that's, a nice world that's a nice world view you have there. Sure would be a shame if something happened to it. 
And he engages them with the gospel unashamedly. We have all the Athenians there in verse 21. All the Athenians, and then who else? And all the foreigners who live there. The gospel is a global religion, and you and I must, uh, and a global message, and you and I must never make the mistake of placing someone in a box that says the gospel is not for them. It's why, it's why racism is a lie from the pit of hell. It is absolutely disgusting and offense against the biblical gospel. Because what does it do? It makes us say that person is not worthy of engaging. It makes us say that person is not worthy of us sharing our life with them. And it is absolutely repulsive to the biblical gospel. Paul didn't believe that, and we better not believe that either. We're called to engage because every one of us is in need of Christ. Do you believe that's true? And all God's people said, Secondly, to engage the coexisting culture, we must be willing to listen to their questions and, and for their assumptions. Every person around us makes basic questions uh, about our worldview and basic assumptions that they bring into it. There was an individual named Ravi Zacharias, not a perfect man, but an incredible thinker. Ravi Zacharias produced a, a book and a teaching series many years ago in which he categorized a worldview. That's just the way you look at the world. Your worldview, the way you view the world. Right? Yeah. And he breaks it down into four different categories. Origins, where we come from. Meaning, what's the purpose of all of this? Morality, what's right or wrong. And destiny, what happens when we die. So origins, meaning, morality, and destiny. Origins. No, no, not you, just this corner, just this spot. Like a, I've heard people like, can we get a four-part choir? Well, here it is. It's our time. Origins, Origins. meaning, Origins. morality, and yeah, it's beautiful, incredible. Not really, but that was a good time together. I enjoyed that. Origins, meaning, morality, and destiny. My, my goal is to get that in your mind. And what we see when we look at this text here is we notice in 22 through 28, we're going to read it together in one chunk and we'll go back and make highlights, is that Paul makes observations about each of those. Even though he's waiting, he looks around and he makes observations about their teachings and beliefs about origins, where they come from. He makes observations about meaning, what's the purpose of life. He makes observations about what they currently believe about morality, what's right or wrong. And then he also engages what happens when we die. Questions about God, finding God. And so let's read this together. Look at 22 through 28. We'll come back and make some of these observations. It says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar in this inscription, To the unknown God. By the way, one of those artifacts that they found, guess what it said on it? to the unknown God. Isn't that cool? It's cool. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. 
And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and we have our being, as even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Let's look at questions concerning our origins or, or assumptions that people make. Look at verse 24. You see it there. He makes this observation of the origin. He says, the God who made the world. And then down in verse 28, he uses their own saying that some of their prophets make, and, or poets make, and they says, for we are indeed his offspring. He was observant to what was taking place. Our world today is obsessed with origins. There's a reason when you turn on the History Channel, you don't see history very much, do you? I think half the shows are dealt with aliens or something. Why is that a, an, an often asked question? Because there's this desire that maybe we'll discover where we came from. There's deep into every one of our hearts a desire to know our origins. There's a reason those Ancestry.coms and those DNA tests are so popular making millions upon millions of dollars because part of us wants to know, even in life, I wonder about my great-great-great-great-grandparent. I wonder what my blood is. It's woven into us. What are my origins? And Paul engages the people and he says, your origins are, you're created not from these multiple gods, but you were created by the one true God. You're created in His image, and that is why we have this desire to know about our past and our beginnings. I don't know your season in life that you're in, but I can promise you this. You can have a relationship with the one who knit you together in your mother's womb. You don't have to search the cosmos. You can know the one who designed it personally in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Everyone asks questions concerning their origins, but also there's questions and assumptions here regarding meaning. Meaning. Verse 23, he says, so that some seek God and they feel their way toward Him. The purpose in life, they're working their way, they're crawling, they're etching their way toward God. And down in verse 27, it says that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from us. And then he continues on and he references that of worship that's taking place. We are worshiping beings. It's who God made us to be. We, we cannot help it. Anybody that even claims to be an atheist or an agnostic, one who says you just can't know, they are worshiping beings. They can deny it with their lips but they cannot deny it with their lives. If you don't believe me, watch a sporting event. Worship. It's giving worth to what takes place. We can't help it, can we? Well, that was an incredible catch. Did you see that goal? That was amazing. Flip the channel and go to the spelling bee. It's not just a guy's thing. It's not just a sports thing or a girl's thing. Whoever enjoys sports, it's not just a sports thing. Go to the opposite. Go to a completely not physical activity of the spelling bee and watch how those people respond when a word is spelled correctly. They go crazy. Their parents are 
chewing off their fingernails. And when it happens, they're just filled with joy. You and I hunger for meaning and purpose. We can't help it because we're worshiping beings. It's what we do. When you go out to eat today, you'll eat a meal and you'll give commentary on it, won't you? Well, that was excellent. You're saying that was praiseworthy. Or you'll do the opposite. That was terrible. That sermon was horrible today. I don't even know what Brent was thinking. You're saying either something was excellent and praiseworthy or it does not reach the standard of meaning that you would ascribe to it. We can't help it. Why? Because we are worshiping beings created, not to worship creation, but to worship the Creator. Every good gift is of God, and He is worthy of the meaning of your life. I like what the shorter Westminster Catechism, it says, what is the chief end of man? What is our purpose? What's the chief end? What's the chief end of man? That we are to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And then the question becomes, how, do we, how is God most glorified? God is most glorified when you and I are most satisfied in Him. Our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You today can glorify God. When we gather together as a church, what are we doing? We're together glorifying God, regardless of the season of life we find our way in. And that is absolutely beautiful. We're doing what we were made to be. We have our meaning. Thirdly, we have questions that, and, and assumptions that concern morality that you and I, like good little children, should constantly provoke with the question, why? Look at verse 28. He goes back and he says, In Him, in, in God, we live and we move and we have our being. In Him, we live and move and have our being. He created us and He sustains us and He cares how we live. He cares how we treat each other. He cares how a spouse treats another spouse. So much so, even in the Christian context of the first century world, he tells to the husbands, husbands, if you do not honor your wife, the Lord will not honor your prayers. Morality is based upon the very nature of who God is. I want to be clear here, there's a myth that often is spread that where people maybe that don't know Christ, that aren't Christians, that don't trust in Christ, will make statements like this. Are you saying I have to be a Christian to be moral? And that's not what we're saying. We're saying that because you're created in the image of God, you will act morally. But if you deny God, you have no foundation for the morality you live in, the right and wrong you claim. And here's what I want you to do. Don't simply listen or read atheist material. Watch how they parent. Watch how they parent. And this is what I mean. The greatest philosophers in the world are children. Because children are really good at asking what question? Let's hear it, parents. There it is. Why? You keep kicking that can down the road, and where does the parent eventually go to? Because it goes to authority, doesn't it? But listen, if there is no God, and you and I are simply a cosmic accident, then why should they listen to you? When we look at morality of how a country behaves or how a person behaves, and we said, don't bully that person. And they say, why? And you say, because it's wrong. Well, why is it wrong? Because I said so. Well, who are you? Because all of us said so. Who are you? If there is no God and we are simply a cosmic accident, you and I are nothing but stardust bumping into one another. 
Nothing matters. But you and I know that is not true. We know it's not true. We have beauty and value and dignity because we're created in the image of God. That which is right flows from the very nature of God. See, it's not wrong to lie simply because the Bible says so. It does say so, but it's wrong because God is truth. To lie is to assault the very nature of the one who created us and sustains us. He is perfectly faithful and true. Murder is wrong because God is the sustainer of life. It is His. We are created in the image of God. Regardless of what we claim, we are worshiping beings. We'll give an account one day. So if you hear somebody in our culture that decries even thievery or murder, things that we know are wrong, ask them like a good little child the question, what? Why? Why is it wrong? And keep making them kick the can until they get to a point that says, it just is. They have to say it just is ultimately because they're created the image of God, just as you and I were. Origins, meaning morality, and destiny. And destiny. So they, they, they go on and they will, maybe perhaps they will find God. They will find God. You see that catch? It's incredible. It's good. Every one of us ultimately will give an account to God. But you and I can know God. We can know God. If you want to know how quickly life goes by, I love to look at statues that we put up. And museums are likewise, they're statues. They're statues on our campus. You know, there's statues around our town driving around. I've seen them in several different places. There's this desire that every one of us has to be remembered, to continue on. When Sarah and I were, were researching the beautiful town of Nacogdoches, you know the first saying that we found? Take a wild guess. There it is. There's a part of every one of us individually and collectively to want to be known, to want to be remembered, to have a destiny that goes on beyond us. Our destiny in life, as life is like a vapor, we will all see God one day. How does that make you feel? Does that give you fear? Or does it give you joy? You can know Christ and know the joy of that reality. We'll look thirdly. To engage the coexisting culture, we must be convinced of the hard truths of the gospel. We must be convinced of the hard truths of the gospel. The reality is that truth by nature, it is exclusive and it can be offensive. We say these things without offense in our voice or our tone. We say them lovingly, but truth by nature, it challenges our authority over our own life. And I want to make four quick observations here of how Paul does not shrink back from these hard truths. He knows he's saying a message that will be offensive to the Athenian people because he's challenging the worldview that they live under. But he doesn't shrink back from telling them the truth. May you and I do the same. Let's look at the first of those. It's this in verse 29, that God is not created in your image. God is not created in your image. By the way, I phrased all these in second person towards you, so it sounds offensive when I'm telling you this, but it also comes back at me, so know that. I'm not yelling at you. Your image, right? This is all of us. 
God is not created in our image. God is not created in your image. That's an important thing to tell ourselves on a regular basis. Look at verse 29. He says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that, we div- that, that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art uh, and imagination of man. We are created in the image of God. God is not created in our image. It's why the secular humanities, as valuable as they may be, start from a false assumption that man made God or that man arrived at God, that it's only the naturalistic things of the universe. It starts from a false beginning point. This challenges their very belief in their way of life and says, no, you are not creating God. He is not your offspring. Rather, you are God's offspring. You are created and designed by God. Every one of us needs the word every day, myself included, with a capitalized statement. Because I will try to put God into a box. But when we read the scriptures and we see Christ, we realize that Christ will not be a mascot for any of our political parties. Right? It's true. When, when, when uh, voting season comes, you'll see each person will quote Jesus. Isn't it incredible? God will not fit into our box the same way in our lifestyle. The best thing for my wife, Sarah, is if I'm in the scriptures because the Spirit will convict me in areas that she cannot even know. And the best thing for me, likewise, if, is if she is in the Word. The best thing for our kids is if they're in the Word of God because it's constantly checking our image. Let me give you another thing to Google later when you get home. I want you to Google in this image. It's called Divine Mercy. You've probably already seen it. I grew up with this, this painting in a, in a relative's home. It's a picture of Jesus. It was painted in 1934 in Lithuania. It's a picture of Jesus in which Jesus has beautiful blue hair and stunning blue eyes. Did I say blue hair? Blonde hair. Yeah, not blue hair. That would be a crazy picture. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> oh, man. That's good. That's a good one. That would be terrifying. Okay, no. So he's got the opposite. He's got blonde hair and stunning blue eyes. Very gentle. He does not look like a carpenter. And he certainly doesn't look like a, a, a Middle Eastern first century Jewish man. He looks like a Jesus painted in our image, in someone's image, doesn't he? You and I do that in our lives on a weekly basis. We have a tendency, even as Christians, to create a Jesus in our own image. But we must stay as students under the authority of God's word. So again, God has not created your or my image. And secondly, God cares how you live and he demands that you now repent. Look at verse 30. It says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. To repent is a change of mind that leads to a change of action. It's a change of direction for your life. It's the same word given in Acts chapter 2. That, that word repent is used as a verb on five different occasions in the book of Acts in these sermons. And the statement is this, you and I must have a change of mind that leads to a change of action. Very much like the child that thinks it's a great idea to reach up and touch the stove. And then they touch the stove, and they hear their skin. And what do they do? Change of mind, bad idea, and it leads to what? Change of action. It's a change of direction. You and I are called to live lives of repentance. Thirdly, we see this, that Jesus Christ will judge all people everywhere. Jesus Christ will judge all people everywhere, not just people in Texas that have heard the gospel. He will literally judge all people everywhere. People that have not yet heard the gospel, 
will give an account to Jesus Christ on the day of judgment. Verse 31. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. That is Christ Jesus. We'll see that in a moment. Some of you might have grown up in churches that were fire and brimstone churches. Some of you have. In which the, the, the preacher maybe yelled until, they were, uh, until you were blue in the face and your ears were deaf. But don't make the mistake of penduluming so far on the other side that you don't realize that Jesus teaches us more about hell than any other person in all the Scriptures. Read Revelation 6 for a picture of Jesus coming in judgment. This is a reality. I think Jesus tells us as much about hell because He knows the reality and the certainty of the fate that all people will, will face that do not know Him as Savior and Lord. He came because there is no other way. Jesus Christ will judge all people everywhere. And fourthly, Jesus Christ physically arose from the dead and He is your only hope. The very reason that the word coexist in that sense cannot, cannot ultimately match with the Christian worldview is because the cross on the end of it had to happen because none of those other letters can truly save you. Jesus Christ physically arose from the dead and He is our only hope. 31 through 34. Picking up halfway through 31, it says this. And, 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 and of this, He has given assurance to all by raising Him, Jesus, from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst but some men joined them and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. All truth that gives ultimate assurance and hope is exclusive truth. And only the gospel of Christ, only the good news and hope of Christ can deliver you this morning. And if you're a Christian, rest in that hope. Rest in that hope. The gospel is hope for a broken and lost world that God has placed people in each of our lives to be able to engage with the truth. I had the opportunity to visit uh, with, with Dottie Tucker recently and she gave me a book called The Dawning by John Gilman. I've learned if you visit Dottie, you will leave with a book. Right? So if you want to build your library, go visit Dottie. And she gave me this book and it's a little book so I, I read through it. And as I was reading it, it, it tells the story of John and, and, and John Gilman and he goes over to India and while he's there, God has put upon his heart that he's a, he's a film producer to make a, a film of the gospel story for the Indian people casted entirely by Indian people. And he goes over there and he's in a taxi cab and he looks up and he sees a billboard of a film that's already been produced. And it's being shown and it's, and it's of Jesus. It, it maintains the gospel story very well. And it's made with Indian people. And he's heartbroken. And, and so anyway, he goes through this story and he ends up matching up with the man who made the movie and owns the rights. And he says, listen, you must give me the opportunity to purchase this film from you so we can take it to every village in India. The man moved by God says, okay. And so he acquires the rights and he begins to travel from town to town. They end up going to, he forms these, these film teams they go in, they, they show a projector, they have the movie, and they go in, they get permission, they show the film, and revival begins, the Lord begins to use this 
gospel picture movie all throughout India. And he goes to this one village as he writes, and he goes to this village of about 4,500 people. And he gets permission. It's a, it's a communist kind of dominated little village. And he gets the permission of the chief to show the video, the movie. Chief says, okay, and he shows this gospel story, and he says, as it's being shown, the people are cheering for Jesus. When Jesus is crucified, the people are begin weeping. They've never heard this story. And finally, the movie ends, and it's a simple gospel presentation. It says 400 people, 400 people trust Christ. 400. And a little church begins automatically right there in that village. And while his film crew was there with him, helping to form this church, they're there, and, and as they're with the people, these young Christians from India, they asked him a question. They said, help us understand this one thing. Jesus died and rose so many years ago. Why are you just now telling us about him? I've not been able to get that sentence out of my mind since I read that little book. The Lord has placed us in Nacogdoches not by accident, but by his sovereignty. You and I are called to engage the people that God has placed in our life for a reason. It causes us to ask the question, what is your next step? What is our next step, church? Next steps are this. Here it is. Look at the bottom of your bulletin. God has placed closed-minded, cautious, and coexisting, all those three groups, Thessalonians, Bereans, and Athenians, into our lives for us to engage individually and collectively as a church family. There were two responses and reactions at the proclamation of the gospel in every one of those cities. And what were they? Some mocked, but others believed. Some mocked, but others believed. The gospel is what frees us from our bondage. Faithfully present it. Because some, by God's glorious grace, will believe. I don't know where you're at this morning, but if you don't know Christ, we want you to use your, use your connection card as, a, uh, as an opportunity to share how you're doing. Email us, call us. We want to follow up with you appropriately to figure out your next steps. What are our next steps as a church family? The next five weeks, beginning next week, we're going to walk through a series called Nature and Nurture, which is simply explaining who we are as God's people, how have we been adopted in as, as disciples to, make, to be making disciples of Jesus Christ, and the specific vision that we believe healthy disciples have, that they are people who are committed to the Word of God, committed to the worship that the Lord has us to do together, to serve one another in love and good deeds, and to live out the life as the family of God. The next five weeks together, we encourage you to listen. If you miss catch up. We love you. We love one another in the Lord. Let's pray before we respond in a song of worship to our King. Father, we thank you for the hope in the, that we have in Christ. It is not a hope that is broken. It's not a hope that's based upon our emotions. It's not a hope that's based upon our feelings. It's not a hope based upon, I hope I got this figured out, God, but it is a hope that is based upon the reality and certainty of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our King. God, we ask that your spirit would convict us this week, that you would embolden us to engage those you placed around us. We pray that your spirit would minister to those of us that are hurting this morning. God, that you would comfort those who grieve. You would take those of us in our lives maybe that are in a season of sloth and you would provoke us to engage those around us. 
Lord, we love you. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. We thank you for the seeds of the gospel that were planted in the life of our children this week. We pray, God, that it would grow. That they would grow to love you even more than we love you. That they would grow and desire to serve you even more than we desire to serve you. But Lord, we ask that you would do a work in our lives this week. Help us to be faithful to walk in the next steps you have for us. We give you glory and honor and praise because Jesus, he is great and he is better than the trappings of this world. It's in the name of Christ, all God's people said together, amen.